I guess we could adjourn if you'd like. Get a show of hands. It's not about football, is it? <laughs> no, I'm going to go ahead and preach anyway. That's uh, why I get the big money, right? Um, so if our God is for us, how does, how does it go? If our God is for us? Right? Is that how you live in the world? Three weeks ago, Jesus said, Let not your heart be troubled. I'm God and you're mine. And so we've been talking about this. I I took two weeks off out of the Gospel of John. If you want to go ahead and turn in your Bibles or or electronic device to John 14, we're going to be back in John 14, beginning in verse 7. But we took two weeks out, out of John to take a look at heaven. Jesus said, Let not your heart be troubled. I go to prepare a place for you, right? And so during this time of great upheaval and turmoil, Jesus reminds them that He's God, He's in charge, He's sovereign. There's not one rogue molecule in the universe. He's in control of it all. And He says, remember, you're mine. I am leaving, but I'll be back for you. And you'll be with me forever. So, as the disciples faced this very difficult time, Jesus is leaving them. And they, they've gotten so... Can you imagine walking with God? I just, I just, You've got to put yourself in their shoes. Can you imagine walking with God incarnate? Can you imagine waking up in the morning and having breakfast with God incarnate for three years and then He's going to be gone? This is quite an ordeal. Quite a trauma for these guys. And Jesus is just going to be teaching them from John 14 on, uh, I think through John 17. Just discourse. This this discourse here, it's compared to the 23rd Psalm. It's just, it's some of the most beautiful promises in all the Bible. And Jesus is going to encourage his men, and he's speaking to us as well. I want to begin tonight with a quote. It's from my favorite preacher, for those of you who are visiting. My favorite preacher is an American named John Piper, and he's written a lot of books. One of his best books, I think, it's entitled God is the Gospel. Uh, If you haven't read this book, I highly recommend it. Why is the Gospel good news? Because God. That's why. We get God. You know, not going to hell and going to heaven is a big deal. But it's kind of not on the same... It's, not in the, it's almost not in the same universe as the fact that we get God. God is the Gospel. God is the good news. Yes, He's there. Yes, He's beautiful. Yes, He's compelling. We'll spend a billion eternities, you know, learning about Him. Discovering His infinite beauty and genius. I love Psalm 37. I've told you before, it's, it's when, no matter who I'm counseling and what I'm counseling them about, I always go to Psalm 37, delight yourself in the Lord and He will what? Someone tell me. Give you the desires of your heart. Now, of course, he's talking about 
those, those God desires that He's hidden in your heart that some of you don't even know about yet. And you don't know about them yet because you're not seeking the Lord. You say, well, I'm not, I'm not sure what I'm supposed to do with my life. Well, uh, if you're a Christian, I know what you're supposed to do. You're supposed to seek God, first and foremost. And through that process, you find out who in fact you really are. You don't know who you are until you come into relationship with Jesus Christ. I'm, I'm talking about a real relationship. I'm not talking about just going to church. Going to, going to church is a good thing. You should go to church if you call yourself a Christian. I'm talking about being in relationship with the Lord. Here's the quote I want to share with you. It's a little bit lengthy, so just please pay attention. John Piper writes, I'm aware that when I use language of prizing, treasuring, delighting, cherishing, and being satisfied by the glory of God in Christ, it could sound to some as if all brokenness, suffering, pain, and sorrow have been left out. That is not true. This life is not all joy above sorrow. This life is often a battle for joy in the midst of sorrow. If you've lived very long, you know this is true. You know this is true. If you've lived any number of years at all. He continues, The banner that flies over the believer's life is Paul's paradoxical maxim in 2 Corinthians 6.10 that we are sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. We've been talking about this some with the young adults. Even for the Christian, even when we're sorrowful, and the disciples are about to go through a really difficult time. I mean, hell on earth, really, for Jesus and these men. And the Bible teaches that the true Christian, <laughs> even when we're sorrowful, we have this deep and abiding, invincible, omnipotent joy in God. You couldn't take Paul's joy, right? You, you remember the, the litany of, of things that Paul suffered. I won't name all of them, but in 2 Corinthians 11, he was persecuted by the Jews, the Gentiles, and even false Christians. He was shipwrecked three times. He was imprisoned numerous times. Three times he was beaten with rods. Once he was stoned and left for dead. Five times he received 39 lashes from the Jews. And he was often in danger. When you read your Bible and you know, look at the, the lives of the apostles that we know about, you wonder how these false teachers who preach health, wealth, and prosperity get away with it. Well, the only reason they can get away with it is the people they're preaching to don't know what their Bible says. Temporal health, wealth, and prosperity is not the first thing on God's list for you. It's being conformed into the image of His Son, whatever it takes. And as C.S. Lewis says, God will not be distracted with your temporal happiness. He has, he has bigger plans for you than simply temporal happiness. And that's that you would know His Son and become like His Son. This is a breathtaking proposition. So, um, yeah, it just is breathtaking to me. Does God want His people rich? Absolutely. What does Luke chapter 12 tell us? And I'll get into the text in just a minute. What does Luke chapter 12 tell us? What about the rich guy that 
built all those barns. God said, good work, man. That's what I want you to do with all your stuff. Hoard it up, right? God says, yeah, I love it when my people are rich and they hoard it up and keep it for themselves. What did God call that man? Anybody remember? God called him a fool. He said, you're a fool. You're rich in the things of the world, but you're not rich in the things of God. And every time you come in here, I'm exhorting you to be rich in the things of God because the riches of the world do not matter. You don't get to keep any of it. You don't get to keep one centesimi of it. Not one. But you can't lose what God has set aside for you. You can't lose it. You can't lose it. So, on Paul's 195th lash, he was sorrowful, but he was rejoicing. So, to Paul, God was not some vague religious concept. To Paul, God was the most important person in his life. The, 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 the dominant reality of his life is, I love Jesus Christ and I give myself away. If you're a Christian, you understand this. If you're, if you're a true believer, you get this. If you're merely a churchgoer, you, you're not quite sure <laughs> that, you, that you could ever give yourself away to Jesus Christ. You know, unconditionally. I give myself away. My whole life is yours. Um, that's how it was with the Apostle Paul. So Christians suffer. Sometimes we suffer simply because we're Christians. But they can't take our joy. We don't fixate on the trial. What do we do? I've said this a lot. What do we do when the trial comes? What does a true believer do? We look through it. We don't just simply look at it and obsess and fixate and worry and moan and groan and pout. What do we do? We look through it. Because if the trial's in my life as a believer, God's in my life. God is doing something. God is changing me. So I'm looking through the trial at what God wants to do. And it's part of what these men will experience in the coming days as Jesus is crucified. Let me share this one verse and then we'll get into the text. I think we shared it a week or so ago, 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Listen to the Apostle Paul. I hope this is your confession. Paul says, we do not lose heart. It's going to be hard sometimes, right? It's going to be hard. It's not all health, wealth, and prosperity uh, in contrary to, to the false teachers. Sometimes it will be hard. Paul says the true believer does not lose heart. Okay? For these momentary light afflictions are what? Anybody know? I bet some of you know. Are producing for us an eternal weight of glory. It's why we, we spent the last two weeks talking about heaven. You're supposed to be looking at it. You're supposed to be fantasizing about it. You're supposed to be thinking deeply about it. It's supposed to change the way you live when you get up in the morning. I love the true God and I'm going to be with Him in the new heaven and new earth. It informs all that I do. It's a powerful, powerful biblical message. Paul continues, We look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. I'll just stop and ask. Is this, can, are you in that verse? Do you live that verse? <laughs> 
when the, when the hard thing comes, when the trial comes, when the sorrow comes, when the hurt comes, when the, the insult comes, when the imba- abandonment comes, these are momentary light afflictions. Not for nothing. You know, the, the unbeliever just, it's just wasted pain. Right? For the believer, God is working an eternal weight of glory. Okay, I'm in John 14, verse 7. We're going to begin there. Jesus says, Let not your heart be troubled. He said there in verse 1, and then He began to talk about the inheritance they had in Him. He says, I'm God. Believe Me. Trust Me. I'll be back. I'm going to prepare a place for you. Of course, Jesus is talking to His men. uh, Judas has been dismissed. He's talking to the eleven. He's also talking to every true believer. If If you know Jesus Christ tonight, He's talking to you. These words are directed at you and me. Jesus says, Let not your heart be troubled. We will be sorrowful, but we will always be Rejoicing. So this is the challenge that Jesus has for His guys. Yeah, it's going to get hard. The next, the next few days, it's going to be unbelievably hard. I'm God. I'm in charge. You know, when you get into the trial, you have to remember. You ha- even, I, don't, I don't care how small the trial is. And sometimes the smaller trials are more of a temptation to you know, want to get angry and upset and... Don't you hate to get a flat tire? I hate that. But you know, there's this, there's this umbrella of sovereignty. God is sovereign. And whatever He brings into your life, He's teaching you. And He is changing you. So, Jesus is going to challenge the eleven tonight and He's going to challenge you and me to remember that He's God and that He is in charge in the trial. Verse 7, If you had known Me, Jesus said, you would have known My Father also. From now on, you know Him and have seen Him. What is, what is Jesus saying? He's simply saying, if you had known Me more deeply, more fully, you would know. I think this is a soft rebuke to to the eleven. And it may be a soft or hard rebuke to some of you who have claimed for years to be a Christian, but you do not know Jesus Christ. You do not have a real relationship with Jesus Christ. We will never know Him fully, right? He's He's eternal and we're, He's infinite and we're finite. Even in heaven, for a billion eternities, we'll, after a billion eternities, we'll only know just a little bit about Him. There'll always be an infinite amount more to, to learn about Him. I love what Jesus said in Matthew 6.33, If you have some spare time, seek the kingdom of God. If you're not too busy, seek the kingdom of God. If you can squeeze it in, seek the kingdom of God. Is that how Jesus speaks? How does He speak? First, the first thing you do is seek the kingdom of God. Any thinking person 
who actually believes in a supreme being would understand that their first order of business would be to seek Him, know Him, be reconciled to Him. Everything else, hey, you know, number two is way, number two is, is almost, yeah, it's off the screen compared to that one. So, seek ye first the kingdom of God. Made me think of Hebrews 5, 12 and 11. Through 13. You remember this, this rebuke from the writer of Hebrews. The writer says, By this time you ought to be teachers, but you have need again for someone to teach you the elementary principles of God. You're still drinking milk. You should be eating solid food, right? There's a call to, in Christianity to mature, to grow up, to grow up and be mighty in the Word. And if you're mighty in the Word, you'll be mighty in the Spirit. And if you're mighty in the Spirit, you'll be mighty in the world. You won't be intimidated anymore. I'm not saying that fear doesn't well up in our souls and hearts. Of course it does. We're, we're fallen human beings, but we know what to do with our fear. We throw it off because our God is God and our God is sovereign. So Jesus is saying to His disciples and to you, you and me, seek me and know me more than you do today. This is, like I said, this, this begins in time and it stretches all the way through eternity, future. Then Jesus says in verse 7, from now on you know Him and have seen Him. He's simply saying, you're going to get more of God in the next few hours. I will be crucified. This is the undercurrent that's not spoken. This is the unspoken truth. He'll be crucified. He'll be buried. He'll be risen. He'll be ascended in the next few days. They're going to get a good look at the glory of God up close. You will know. Verse 8, Philip says, Lord, show us the Father and it is enough for us. So Philip, uh, <laughs> Philip's a little slow in the uptake. They all are. You know, they've been living by sight, Right? For three years, they've lived by sight. They get up in the morning and Jesus is there. They go to bed at night and Jesus is there. He's always there. He always protects and defends them. They live by sight. They've never had to live by faith. And now faith is coming, right? Faith is coming. Jesus says in verse 9, Have I been so long with you and yet you have not come to know Me, Philip? He who has seen Me has seen the Father... How do you say, show us the Father? This is just another example. The Gospel of John. This is why you tell people who are interested in learning about Jesus to read the Gospel of John. Because many, 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 many times, Jesus just keeps saying, I'm God. I'm God. Here's another example. We saw it clearly. John 8.58, Before Abraham was born, I am. John 10.30, I am the Father or one. And now He's saying, if you've seen Me, you've seen the Father. Jesus clearly says in the Gospel of John, I'm God. Nobody else is God. I'm God. So this is the echo and the chorus of the Gospel of John. Verse 10, Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in Me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own initiative, but the Father abiding in me does His works. Obviously, 
He's trying to continue to communicate who He is. And they, can't, they really can't grasp all that He is. Right? Again, neither will we for a billion eternities. But He says, I am the Father. We, we're one. I'm in the Father. And the Father is in Me. Beloved, you need to know who Jesus Christ is. You claim to be a Christian. Not who the world says He is. Not who other religions say He is. You need to speak from the Bible. You need to be able to say who Jesus Christ is from the Bible. This should, the Bible should be your authority. And you need to speak clearly. I love those verses. Those of you who have been around for a while, you know Isaiah chapters 40-46 to where God says, I'm God and nobody else is. Again, this is what Jesus is saying. Before Abraham was, I am. If you have seen Me, you have seen the Father. You know, I, I get people sometimes in this line of work and they say, well, why doesn't God... I saw it uh, this week on YouTube. Some guy asked some question. Well, why is God so hidden? And I thought to myself, He's not hidden. You just don't want to see Him. He's evident. Romans chapter 1. In the created order, He is evident. You are without excuse. His invisible power, His divine attributes are clearly seen in what has been made, not only within yourself. You know, as a human being, you're a miracle that walks around. You understand this, right? There's like 60 zettabytes or some kind of crazy number of information in every one of your cells. It's called DNA and this is a miracle and a genius wrote this code. And Hey, if you can look in the mirror in the morning and you have a conscious thought, it's a miracle. Your next breath is a miracle. If you just read biology, you worship God. I promise. I'm not a biologist, but you know. You either believe in magic or you believe in God, right? So it's up to you. You choose. I believe in magic or there is an awesome God who does whatever He pleases and who creates Jesus says, I'm that God. Don't fear. I'm that God. This is what He's saying to His men. So how does this impact the way you live? You say, Jim, I, I, made, a confession of, I made a profession of faith when I was a boy and I got baptized. And I, I, I'm, not even, I'm not asking you that question. I'll never ask you that question. I'm not interested in that question. My, my, what I'm interested in is how does the fact that Jesus is God change the way you live when you get out of bed in the morning? That's the question I'm interested in. You know, the fact that maybe you made a profession of faith in Jesus and were baptized when you were eight, that's a good thing. That's a wonderful thing. But if it's not real, it's dead. Right? If it doesn't change the way you live when you roll out of bed, then it doesn't mean anything to you or to God. You know, how can you meet God and remain the same? It's impossible. <laughs> you can't be born again and remain the same. It's uh, not possible. So how does it affect us that Jesus is God in every possible conceivable way? It affects how you love your spouse, how you raise your kids, how you relate to your boyfriends and your girlfriends, how you relate to your colleagues, how you plan and prioritize for the future, how you talk and act at the university, how you spend your money, how you give your money, how you do your job, how you interact with your friends, how you socialize, how you surf the internet. 
If you know the living God, it changes everything in your life. If you're merely religious, you know, you just try to, you just try to hide your sin and wash up and look good on Sunday. Can I tell you? This is a stench in the nostrils of God. Just read the Bible. He hates pretense. He hates pretense as much as He hates anything else. If you read the Word, you'll discover. Verse 11, Believe Me that I am in the Father and the Father in Me. Otherwise, believe on account of the works themselves. Verse 10, I didn't make note of it, but look what it says. The words. Believe because of the words. Look what he says in verse 11. Believe because of the works. Right? It's why the Gospel of John is so important in, in, church, in the church uh, lexicon. Because of the words and works of Jesus. Right? Believe me, there's good reason to believe in Christ. There's good reason. I don't care what the skeptics and the agnostics and the atheists say. It's not merely a leap of faith. It's a leap of truth. He's either a lunatic or he's God. There's no other viable option. C.S. Lewis is right. You can write him off as a lunatic if you want. You'll stand before him one day if you do that. But if that's what you, you know, you have free will, you go do what you want to do. God says, Here I am. Why then will you die? Come. But you know, if you're smarter than God and you know better than God, then you know, go eat, drink, and be merry. But you'll give an account. Do you remember what his enemy said about him? Talking about his words. His enemy said, Never did a man speak the way this man speaks. And never did a man do the deeds that this man has done. Don't ever ask me, why is God hidden? He's not hidden. He's not only obvious in creation, He's revealed Himself to you right here. To the whole world. And you're very blessed. You, you're an English speaker. You've got 15 translations you can read. Right? God has revealed Himself to you. You'll have no excuse I didn't know. You do know. <laughs> God has not hidden Himself. He's making Himself as obvious to you as He can. And then He leaves it up to you for you to decide what you're going to do with Him. God gives us the freedom to choose so, Jesus says, believe My words, believe My works. Jesus says, believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in Me. He says, My words are the wisdom of God. My works are the power of God. Only the willfully blind do not see. I've said it to you many, many times. The Gospel is not an intellectual decision. What is it? It's a moral decision. Again, Romans chapter 1. You know He's God. 
He, put that, he wrote that on your heart. He wrote that on your conscience. You know it. You know Jesus Christ is God. You can deny it if you want with your words, but you know it. As I like to say, there's no such thing as a... You know, you may be a liar, but you're not an atheist. There's no such thing. God's never made an atheist. Let's move on. Verse 12. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes in Me, the work that I do shall he do also, and greater works than... Uh, then these shall He do because I go to the Father. There's an awesome promise here. And you have to you know, remember the context. What's He talking about greater works? How could we do greater works than Him? How, how is that possible? How is that possible? He says, truly, truly. So this is important, right? We've seen it all the way through the Gospel of John. This means you need to get this, you need to hear this, you need to understand this, you need to incarnate this, you need to live this. Jesus tells His men they will not be prey. They will be infused with power. You will do works that I have done, and they did. What, those, those works are recorded in the book of Acts. The Acts of the Apostles. These men were given great power and they did great miracles to authenticate their message, right? Jesus says, you'll do great works. And they did. They were uniquely endowed with power. But what does Jesus mean about greater works? He's talking to the eleven and He's talking to you and me. What's the point here? Not greater in quality, but greater in extent, right? Because the church is made up, down through the history of the world, the church is made up of millions of believers. Not greater in quality, but greater in extent and quantity and scope, right? Jesus never left Israel. <laughs> you travel all over the world. <laughs> you're gonna sow, you're gonna go, you're gonna sow seed everywhere you go, right? There are gonna be believers in your wake all over the world, right? This is what he's talking about. This is what he's talking about. You know, I know that the modern church gets enamored about physical miracles, and physical miracles are great when God grants them. But you know the most important miracle, right? It's when you're born again. And so when you sow the seed, people are born again. It's why I'm a preacher. You know, I had a guy tell me one time, well, what are you preaching? You know, nobody wants to hear that. You know who wants to hear it? The elect want to hear it. The called want to hear it. The chosen want to hear it. The true people of God want to hear it. Yeah, we're a remnant. I get it. We're a remnant. We're a remnant. But the biggest miracle that happens in the church is when we are born again. And if you're a Christian, you do this, man. You have the power because you have the Word and you sow it. And people get born again! Right? It's an awesome thing. It's an awesome thing the Lord's left you here to do. God uses you to change eternities. It's an amazing thing. Old Testament, New Testament. I'll just give it to you real quick. We know it's a miracle. Old Testament. God's going to give you a new heart. 
And He's going to put your, His Spirit within you. He's going to remove that heart of stone, give you a heart of flesh. You were dead, but He's going to make you alive. Uh, he's going to regenerate you by the Holy Spirit. He's going to cause you to be born again. He's, he's, going to be, he's going to make you partakers of the divine nature. This is a miracle. It's a supernatural miracle of God. It's why much of Christendom um, is apostate because it's, it's, like, it's like, well, we can manage... We can manage conversion. You cannot manage conversion. It's a supernatural act of God. We preach the Gospel and then the Holy Spirit does what the Holy Spirit does. I can't manage it. I can't make anybody a Christian. I'm a small issue to it. And yet God lets us be used, right? We just sow the seed. We just sow the seed. And God, God does the miracle. If you're a Christian, you're a miracle worker. <laughs> if, you're, if you're a real Christian and you're in the world, witnessing. You're a, you're a miracle worker. Jesus says He will go and send another. He will say this in the next few weeks. And so the apostles went and they turned the world upside down. Do you, let me ask you, do you turn the world upside down? You say, no Jim, I don't. Yes, you do when you share the truth. You turn the world upside down one person at a time. My mother turned my world upside down. I was 28 years old. I'd been in church all my life. Baptized when I was 8. Didn't care anything about it. But God spoke the Word through her. She did a miracle. <laughs> God used her to do a miracle in me. I'm saying you guys got power, man. <laughs> I'm, saying, I'm saying, God's saying you got power. I guess the question is, are you using it in the world or not? Are you using the power that God has given to you? So, let's finish up. Verse 13, 14. Whatever you ask in My name, that will I do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask Me anything in My name, I will do it. So as a student of the Bible, you have to always remember two things. You have to remember context. And you have to remember that Scripture interprets Scripture. What's the context? The context is the, the work of propagating the Gospel. That's the context. That's the context in which this promise is given, right? It's propagating the Gospel. You know, you have, you have false teachers all over the world ripping this verse out of context, telling you that God will be your genie and God will be your hey boy. You just pray right. You know, God's going to surrender His sovereignty to you. You're a word of faith person. And whatever I speak will be true because I speak it in Jesus' name. Yeah, this is all poppycock. What's the context? The context is in, when, the context is in evangelism. The context is being used of God in the kingdom of God. That's the context. This is what Jesus is talking about about. This is not a blank check that I get a Maserati or a lake house on Como or more hair. That's not what this is about. Why are you laughing, you lady? Okay. That's not what this is about. This is about the work of God saving His people. That's what this is about. And why would you be praying earnestly for anything more than that? I'm just going to ask you. Are you praying more earnestly for your health, wealth, and prosperity than you are for your lost family and friends? This is a scandal. It's a scandal, beloved. 
If it's true, it's a scandal. So, Karen got a big no last week in the States, my wife. And we laughed about it over the phone. Why is it good to get a no from God? Why is it good to get a no? Because the no is just as good as the yes. The no saves you from the yes. The yes would have been wrong for you. You remember the Apostle Paul, he prayed that the thorn in the flesh would be removed. And, and when it wasn't removed, he prayed three times, and when it wasn't removed, he, he threw a tantrum, right? And he got mad at God, and he, he said, I'm not going to pray anymore. Oh, wait, that's not right. What did Paul, what did Paul do? Remember what he did? <laughs> he said, therefore, I'm well contented. God gave me a no, and it's good enough for me. Is that how you pray? Listen, if that's not how you pray, if you don't pray humbly before God and give it to God, how does Jesus pray in the garden and when He gives us the Lord's Prayer? He says the same thing. How does He pray? Your will be done. When you ask for something in Jesus' name, that's really what you're saying. I want your will. I want your greatness. I want your renown in my life. Whether I get more hair or not, it doesn't matter. I don't even pray for hair, really. I've never prayed for hair, but it's just a, yeah, it's a funny example. I think I look good this way. What do you think, Renee? No comment. Okay. I got it. I hear what you're saying. I'm rocking it. Uh, okay, I'm going to close with this. You guys know the, you, you, okay, Scripture interprets Scripture. We've got the context. What is, how does Scripture interpret Scripture? We know the, the verse that governs all prayer Promises of prayer in the Bible. There's one verse that governs it. 1 John 5. I think it's 13. Yes. If we ask anything according to His will, He hears us and we know that we have His requests which we have asked. And I, I, I say again, why would you want anything other than the will of God? Why would you want it? If you thought about it more than 120 seconds, you realize I don't really want anything that's outside the will of God. Obviously, that's not best for me, right? So, I'll close with this. Uh, John Piper, my, my favorite preacher, he and his wife were praying through something some years ago. It was very difficult. And he said he got to the point. I'll just read you what he says. He said, God admonished me that my pleadings were no longer faith-filled, but that I was starting to nag Him. It's not good to nag God. I was not surrendering and handing the burden over to Him. My pleadings were with the tone that if I don't get what I want, I'll be perpetually unhappy. This is unbelief since it elevates God's answer to my prayer above God. Do you get it? Beloved, don't pray like this. Pray with open hands and a glad heart. Your will be done. Your will be done. And whatever comes, comes. Praise God. I'm not saying you can't intercede and pray. I'm not saying that. But don't devolve into nagging. God. So Jesus is saying to the 11 guys and He's saying to you and me, it will get hard. But let not your heart be troubled. I'm God and you're mine.
You'll live mighty in the world if you believe that. If you believe that and incarnate that, you'll live mighty in the world. And like we talked about last week, when you give your account to the Lord, you'll get that well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your Master. Believe and remember. Believe and remember. I'll close with this. Because I want this on your heart when you leave. We do not lose heart when it's hard. For momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. We look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. Do not let your heart be troubled. Jesus Christ is God. And if you're a Christian tonight, you're His. If you're not, and you have questions about that, please, come talk to me. Let's pray together. Lord, thank You for this beautiful text. Thank You for this reminder. You are God. You are sovereign. And we are Yours. So Lord, we ask that You give us a boldness. We ask that You would teach us to be fearless in the world. That You would give us a hunger and a thirst for the Word. And that we would be sowing good seed in the world for the salvation of men and women and for the glory of Jesus. We pray this in His wonderful, matchless, beautiful name. The name before whom every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. The name above every other name. The name of Jesus, we pray in His name. Amen.